Well, we've still got stuff for you to do. Why consent to dying? Has anybody ever consented to dying? I didn't know it was up to us. <laughs> it's... I'm going to try that. God has given me a certain amount of things to do, and the slower I do them, I'll live forever. <clears throat> the title of this message is The Justice and the Vengeance of God. I assume my back is part of that. The judgments and mercies of God have confused man since the beginning. He tells us, my ways are not your way. And so the way we think, the way we process information is different from God. He shows mercy to people, even in the scriptures, that we would not show mercy to. And he condemns people that we probably wouldn't. People we would see as upstanding citizens. He shows mercy to criminals. Even taxmen. Oh. Today I want to try to present the just God, the God of justice. And I will begin with the premise that there is a God. Because without that premise, all discussion about right, wrong, good, evil, justice, it's all simply vain. Vanity, it's an intellectual exercise. Philosophy, nothing more, nothing less. Without God, there's no objective standard for any of these concepts just mentioned, and relativism is all that is left for us. If there's no God, then we have no king, and if there's no king, everybody does what's right in their own eyes. So what's right to me might, might agree what's right, what's right to you. Might not. You might be a pacifist. I might be a warmonger. There's nothing to say that your philosophy on life is better than mine if there is no objective standard. God's Torah provides the foundational principles for anyone who desires to live righteously. I'm spending a lot of time on that word over the last three weeks. Some of my people believe that the Torah is the foundation also for the kingdom of heaven itself. They see that sephiric lore revealed in Exodus chapter 24 not as a bluish kind of jewel, but as the scroll of the Torah. The word Safir comes from Sofer, which means scroll, or the one who writes that scroll. And they see that the throne of God and his feet resting on the scroll of Torah, from Exodus chapter 24. When I was a young boy in, in the Cheder, from the time of five or six, 
I was taught the importance of studying the Torah, God's, God's law. And as an example for how important that is, I was taught that God occupies his time with the study of Torah, the Torah that, that was delivered at Sinai. Of course, that implies that God follows his own law. Christian theologians approach the subject with a question. Is God obligated to follow his own Torah? Did he obligate himself to follow his own Torah? Presumably that's why he's studying it, so that he doesn't sin. The pilpul, or the discussions over this concept, oftentimes become animated, and although certainly a valid question, does God is God obligated to follow his own Torah? That's a valid question, but unfortunately those discussions invariably produce a lot more heat than they do light. The arguments are epic. My thoughts on this matter are quite, quite those of a child, very childlike. I dismiss the question entirely. I determine that God is sovereign. God is holy. And as such, whatever he does is lawful. It is righteous. And it is just. Well, Although that statement is accurate, it really doesn't satisfy the mind of the seeker of God. Man wants to know why. He wants to know how. We have all these questions. So let's dig a little deeper. Maybe we can understand these things in a, in a greater depth. The statement that God studies his own Torah as well as the question, is God obligated to follow his Torah, immediately reveal a theological quandary. There's a problem. If God is obligated to follow the Torah he gave at Sinai, theoretically, that would render God's Torah a higher source of authority than God. His word would compel him to behave in ways that he might not want to behave. God's word would then be sovereign, have all authority and power, not the author of God's word, God. I know, it gets a little convoluted. It suggests that God would be subject to his own edicts, to his own words. To frame the question a little differently and to expose it for what is really being asked, is God an expression of his word, or is God's word an expression of God's existence? Which paradigm do we sit and look at and view this subject from? Now God, being subject to his own laws, has some historical precedence amongst the kings of men. If you'll remember from the book of Esther, 
the king of Persia declares his word to be law, and there were no circumstances under which that his words could be reversed, any judgments he made. In fact, they couldn't even be reversed by the king of Persia. The king of Persia gave up the power to reverse his own judgments. When he decreed that Haman and his men could attack Mordecai and the Jews, he was bound by those words. He couldn't reverse it. When he found out that Esther was one of the Jews that the rapscallion Haman desired to kill, he found a way around his own words. He couldn't reverse them, but he found a way around it. He allowed the Jews to defend themselves, and they prevailed, and we survived. Yay! But when I look at God and I read his word, the God of Scripture is bound by no such decree. Nowhere do I read that God is bound by his, his words. That he can't change his mind if he wants. The God of Scripture, not being bound, my first statement covers this. Whatever God does is lawful, righteous, and just. He doesn't have to justify to man his action. Whatever he does, it's right. The cry of Moses for God to remember his promises to Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov and not destroy Israel are not cries certainly for justice. They're cries for mercy. Show us mercy. I want to examine the concept of, of justice. It is a concept that has been a thorn in the mind of man since the beginning. Synonyms for the word justice would include words like fairness, equal treatment, impartiality. You don't treat one person different in the same situation as another person because that person has more influence or more money. Impartiality. You look at the facts, you look at the what was done, the person's guilty, regardless of who he is, guilty. If he's innocent, same thing. There are a few conditions amongst humanity that will evoke indignation faster than an injustice done. American jurisprudence goes to extraordinary lengths to ensure that a man is not wrongfully accused or convicted. In our society, if a man, if somehow that situation slips through the cracks, if he is um, punished wrongfully, he is compensated to receive some level of justice. It cannot be complete equality. But he receives, for instance, from the government that convicted him, lost wages. There's a settlement for pain and suffering. And there's a public statement made exonerating him and to restore his good name. The conviction was public. 
though the exoneration also has to be public, so that everybody knows this man was wrongfully accused and wrongfully punished. Of course, this ideal is not always met. That is the ideal. It's not always accomplished. Many have been punished for crimes they did not commit. And as I was preparing this, my mind went to one of my first motorcycle trips across the country, and I decided to take Southern route. And as I was riding along, enjoying the weather in Arizona in August, I saw a sign for Tombstone, and I'd never been in Tombstone, so I decided I'm going to go to Tombstone because I needed a good laugh. And one of the best places to get a good laugh is in the cemetery in Tombstone. I know, it's counterintuitive, but if you've never been there, that's why you think that. If you have, you'll un you understand why I'm saying it. It's got some of the greatest tombstones ever produced by mankind. Hilarious thing. But there is one tombstone that is germane to what I'm talking about. Here lies George Johnson, hanged by a mistake in 1882. He was right. We was wrong. But we strung him up. Now he's gone. That exoneration was of little value to old George. His body just moldered in that grave and everything he had went to another. Most discussion on the righteous judgments of God begin and draw from Abraham's dialogue with God over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is, enters into the, uh, the occupation, if you will, of a defense attorney for these two cities and pleads the case before God. Genesis 18, 24 and 25. Suppose there are 50 righteous in the city. Will you sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of fit of the 50 righteous who are within it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked. Shall not the judge of the whole earth deal justly? That rhetorical question reveals Abraham's indignation, how repulsed he is at the thought that the righteous should die alongside the wicked. It, he can't deal with it. It's not fair. God agrees, apparently. Abraham continues to intercede, and eventually he whittled God down to ten people. If there are ten righteous, would you then still destroy the city? And God says, how? For the sake of the ten righteous, I will not. In this portion of, of Scripture, man infers that God will not destroy an entire population for the sake of the righteous. There are a couple of problems with that determination, that inference. First, there's no agreement on the definition, definition of the word righteous. 
Even if God were bound by his word, he has determined that there are none who are righteous. Not even one in Psalm 51. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3. That our righteousness is as a filthy rag. Isaiah 64. So by that definition of perfect righteousness, of course, there is not one in that city who is righteous, let alone ten, in either Sodom or Gomorrah or combined. There's none who are righteous. But even if we were to find some relatively righteous people in those cities, that would not necessarily avert the judgment of God against the wicked. The righteous do not exonerate the wicked. God could remove those who were righteous and then meet the criteria of his bargain with Abraham. If he removes the righteous, there's none who are righteous in that city. And that's exactly what he does. He approaches righteous Lot, and the angels who were sent there to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah tell, we, we can't destroy the city yet, you're still here. Come on, hurry up, pack. Lot is removed, and the destruction of the two cities begins. The scriptures make a strange statement to me. Thomas writes, I have never seen the righteous suffer and their children go without. Well, you got to get out more. I have seen the righteous suffer. I have seen their children in prison. I have seen people wrongfully accused and their lives dismantled. I've seen that. Point of fact, we often see the righteous suffer. Of those who have walked this earth, certainly none was more righteous than Yeshua. And he was falsely accused and put to death wrongfully he was not the first and certainly not the last to be martyred for living righteously in a wicked world <clears throat> david was not guilty of what shaul accused him of and yet he was still hounded by this evil king night and day in revelation chapter 6 verse 10 through 11 how long O lord holy and true until you avenge Take revenge for the blood, for our blood, and judge those who dwell upon the earth. Then each of them was given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brethren, were killed. I remember the first time I read that. My first question. Why wait? If you wait, you have to take revenge. Why not stop the murders now? Doesn't that make more sense? You, you're going to allow them to be killed, and then you're going to avenge them. Stop them from being killed. 
And you can you don't have to take vengeance. The words of the martyrs actually sound quite similar to the Lord's own voice at the death of Abel. Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Very similar understanding. Yeshua gives us a promise in the new covenant. In this world, you will have trouble. That's his promise. In this world, the righteous will have trouble. Why? The world is enmity with God. It's an enemy of God. And so if you're following God, you are now considered an enemy of the world. And you're going to have trouble. It's always been true. From the time of Abel to the moment of the last martyr's death in the book of Revelation. God's acceptance of the terms Avraham offers does not compel him to spare the lives of the righteous in this world. I'm sorry. Historically, that is an it is an inaccurate thought to believe the righteous will escape suffering. That's preposterous. We have empirical evidence to this. The righteous died throughout the Tanakh. And in the new covenant, in truth, the prophets and the apostles all died horribly. And I have to assume that God considered them to be somewhat righteous. They wrote scripture. They were inspired by God. The benefits of walking righteously are not found in this world but on the other side of the mechitza that separates this world from the world to come. That is where justice is revealed, the fullness of justice. Jewish theologians and philosophers have pondered this question since forever. It is not just Jewish philosophers who ask these questions. Philosophers of every single nation of every single time have asked the same question. Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? It's a point of very uh, of severe consternation to the human mind. Jeremiah was perplexed by this same question in chapter 12. Why does the way of the wicked succeed? Habakkuk in chapter 1 asks a very similar question. Why do you remain silent when the wicked devour those more righteous than them? The psalmist is utterly perplexed. Behold, such are the wicked. They are always at ease, and they increase their riches. Surely in vain have I cleansed my heart and washed my hands in innocence, because all day long I am plagued, and I am chastened every morning. Why do I bother trying to live righteously? I'm hounded, the wicked, they seem to be doing just fine. They all have Lamborghinis.
In truth, these are valid concerns. They are valid questions. If you're the God of righteousness, why do you allow the righteous to suffer? When my first wife, Sylvia, was approached by some evangelists, she first scoffed at the concept that they were trying to present to her, that Yeshua was Mashiach. And she said, well, if there's a God, why is there so much evil in the world? I've gotten that question on the mission field. I don't know how many times I've lost count. These men were inspired by God, and they gave her the parable of the wheat and the tares, where God allows both the righteous and the wicked to grow together, and he waits until the harvest before separating them. Why would he do that? If, if, if you're not a farmer or a rancher, perhaps you don't understand the fullness of what Yeshua is saying here. When you plant wheat, when it begins to grow, it looks just like grass. In fact, it's called wheat grass. And it looks exactly the same as the weed, any other weed in the field, like, for instance, goat heads, come up first as, as grass. And only as they grow can you tell the difference between the goat heads and the wheat. And that's why God waits. Because at first, you can't tell. Only as those things begin to grow and bear fruit, then you can tell the difference between the wheatgrass and the goat heads. There is an answer that is provided by my people that presents a rare moment of clarity concerning these words of Yeshua and ultimately the justice of God. They write something along these lines. No man is either all good or all bad, but a mixture of both. The wicked are rewarded in this world for the few good deeds that they have performed, while the righteous are chastened in this world for those few times they have sinned. The final rewards are revealed in the world to come. The punishment of the wicked is then just for they have already received the rewards in this world for their few deeds of goodness. The righteous will be exalted in the world to come, for they have already been punished in this world for those few times they sinned. So in the wor world to come, the judgment of eternal damnation or eternal life is a just judgment. Frankly, it's the only explanation I've ever heard that makes any sense to me, to my mind. Of a truth, the injustices of this world, which are many, will be rectified in the world to come. Why does God allow injustice to exist within this world? As the parable suggests, he is a patient God, not wanting any to be destroyed, to be to perish. And therefore he waits, hoping that the wicked will repent and return to him. I heard something the other day. It was something that 
you know, sometimes you hear things and you just your soul just goes, ah. Because you know it's true. And it's a concept you never would have come up with yourself. What was written was, the martyrs of Revelation will rejoice and welcome in those who repented from murdering them. It was a profound statement to me. And it melted my heart. Now I'll probably get into something that'll bother you, but that's one of my gifts. The word vengeance is closely associated with the word justice. Although in our society, vengeance is typically seen in a negative light. A close analysis reveals that it's not vengeance in and of itself that is evil, but the rush to vengeance that is often unjust. Old George bears a witness to that. God promises that he will avenge, take vengeance for the blood of his people. From Yeshua's mouth in Luke chapter 18, shall, not, shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night? Those saints in Revelation cry out for vengeance. How long, O oh Lord, will it be before you avenge my blood? Justice demands vengeance. To not avenge a wrong that is committed is to show injustice to the one against whom that wrong was committed. There's no equality there. How long before you avenge me? Man's vengeance is often flawed, flawed, but he has limited knowledge. He can be fooled. God suffers from no such deficit. God's vengeance is always just and true. But he not only sees the action, he sees the intent of the person who commits that action. God promises both to avenge and vindicate the righteous among humanity. And although similar, avenge and vindicate have different meanings. They're not the same word. They're not even synonymous. To avenge is to punish the one who did the evil. To vindicate is to exonerate and restore the one upon whom that evil was perpetrated. He will do both. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, Yeshua addresses this issue. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Those righteous who were persecuted here will be vindicated. And vengeance will be shown to those who perpetrated that violence against them. Vengeance is a part of justice. Always has been. 
It can't be evil in and of itself, for God declares, vengeance is mine. I will repay in Deuteronomy 32. So by definition, it can't be evil. God is basically telling Israel, lead the vengeance to me. I know more about what's going on. I'll take care of it. I will repay. Man takes vengeance, and he's wrong. He's guilty. Those who strung up old George were murderers. Plain and simple. God will repay. And although this is a general rule, vengeance is mine, say the Lord, leave it, I'll take care of it. That's a general rule. It is reiterated in Romans 12 by Shaul, the apostle Shaul. It's not always the case. There are times in Scripture when man takes vengeance. One of the most profound is when Pinchas follows Zimri and Cosby into the tent of the meeting, and he runs a spear through both of them. He kills them inside God's sanctuary before God himself. The Lord doesn't condemn him. The Lord praises him. In fact, the Lord averts the judgment that he planned because Israel was tolerating all of this kind of foolishness. Do you remember a prince of Israel brought his heathen wife into the temple? An offense. God was about to purge Israel. Pinchas' action averted that judgment. And God basically says, finally, a man who's zealous for, who's jealous for my name. Someone actually acted. And he averts the judgment. Is the Lord contradicting himself here? Vengeance is mine. Oh, good job for taking vengeance. Good. God contradicting his own statements? No. In both cases, God's actions are righteous and just, for he is God. The Torah gives general laws, but those laws are applied on a case-by-case basis. They're not just uniformly put down. Otherwise, why would you need a judge to begin with? Here's what the law says. If you break the Shabbat, you, you have to be stoned. You broke the Shabbat. Oh, and everybody, well, everybody would be dead right after the first Shabbat. I don't know who would stone the last guy, but God would take care of it somehow. We have a judge who takes that law and then applies it to that particular case. Are there any extenuating circumstances? Are are there any considerations that need to be pondered before we pronounce judgment? And the way God judges more often than not confuse us. 
I mean, we were just talking about it this morning. I... When Cain kills Abel, God puts a mark upon him to keep any other man from taking vengeance upon him. Not allowed to. He can't be killed. Ananias and Sapphira lie about how much money they gave to the apostle. And they both fall dead. Do I understand that application of justice? Is that fair? To me, hardly. Sorry. I don't, I don't understand it at all. I have no understanding of those two actions. One man commits murder, takes another man's life, cannot be restored. He's protected. Another man lies about how much money he gave. He, he dies on the spot. There's no equality. There's no justice in my mind between those two judgments of God. And I am left to simply default my childlike determination that I gave at the beginning of this message. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I understand. God is sovereign. And as such, whatever he does is lawful, is righteous, and is just. The fact that I don't understand everything that's going on, the backstory to these two incidents, doesn't make God wrong. It makes me ignorant. I don't know all the facts. Those words echo in the hearts of my people. We have watched millions of our righteous die at the hands of the wicked. At the memorial of those righteous souls, you will hear the words, Blessed is the righteous judge or the, the judge of truth. It has a number of implications. But basically, this is God's judgment. We don't always understand, but we have to accept it. Whenever I come to an impasse with God, which is a lot more times than you might suspect, uh, daily, when I simply cannot pierce the veil of ignorance. When I cannot understand his ways, I have to default to these words. Those words reveal my surrender to the one who says his ways are higher than mine. Now, if you've ever been in the military, those who've been in the military have a visceral understanding of the words I'm speaking. You receive an order. You may not like that order. Who cares? Here, here's a dime. Call somebody. Maybe they'll care. 
You may not understand that order. Once again, who cares? You're a sergeant. You're a lieutenant. You are given a minuscule part to play in a battle. You don't understand all the forces that are at work, and nobody's going to explain it to you. Here are the orders. Here is your area of purview, what you need to accomplish, what you need to do. And even if it takes your life, this is necessary for that overall battle to be won. Just do your job. Sometimes God explains things to me. Most often, he does not. My job, do your job. That's all. brought this up last night. When my first wife died, I had no understanding. I took the life of a righteous woman. You could not find anyone else. If you have a quota, you couldn't find anybody else? Took a righteous woman? I wasn't happy. I didn't understand. And I also wasn't happy with God. It took a while to process and to finally default. Bless the righteous judge, the judge of truth. Shall I only bless him when I agree with what he says? When I like what he says? When I understand what he says? Or do I accept him as the Lord of the universe, Godward? Do my words argue with him? Or do they echo the words of Job? Though he slay me, yet I will still hope in him. As we look around today, there is very little understanding of what's going on. The spiritual and physical state of the universe it's in utter chaos at the moment. Frankly, I don't understand anything that's going on around me. It's why I rarely leave my room, and when I do, I come over here. And I lock myself in that room. Because what's going on is driving me crazy. The chaos that swirls around me is dismantling my mind. Makes me nuts. 
like to say it drives me crazy, but it's a short drive. Hardly worth starting up the, the truck. It, you just take a step to the side, and there he is. He's crazy. God is sovereign. Sovereign. And whatever he does, he's righteous. And all of his judgments are true. And if you walk a path that has those words as its foundation, then you won't stumble. And when it, you won't fall. If that is the faith that you hold. My individual circumstance is irrelevant. Do your job. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria. To everyone you come across throughout the world, let the light of my presence shine through you. I will avenge those who falsely accuse you, and I will vindicate you. Get those words on the inside of you, because believers will be falsely accused. We have always been falsely accused. You may or may not be vindicated here. It's not relevant. There is a world to come, and that world to come is coming. It's almost here. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Father, in Yeshua's name, we give praise, honor, and glory that your words, even in the midst of darkness, confusion, suffering, bring us clarity of vision. Even as Stefan, as he's wrongly accused and being stoned. You roll back the heavens and allow him to see the glory of your presence, the glory that he will soon be in. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see and we might hear the sounds of the blessed destination that you had chosen and gone to prepare for us, that where you are, we might be also. Amen.